0: Technology has evolved ridiculously. I remember my first job; people were getting their smartphones. That was in 2011, and I was still running around on a more classical phone with a new interface, and that was it—the
1: one that had snake.
0: I well, not the one that had snake. I did have I did have the Nokia 3310. I think at some point, <laughs> I think I had a Sony Ericsson as well. But it's just funny when you realize that you were also there throughout a new technological boom. Like there's literally a technological boom every two years now versus before where it was yeah. maybe every five or 10 years. It's incredible.
1: You are listening to Tech Unfiltered. My name is Nora, and I'm sitting down with creative technologists to talk about the latest tech trends, the lessons they've learned, and how to navigate it all. Welcome to another episode. Today we are here with Avneesh Reisada. Yeah. So you're the UX Specialist and Customer Experience Advisory Leader for DevoTeam, mm-hmm. right? So maybe introduce yourself a bit to our audience and explain what you do on a daily basis in Devo Team.
0: All right. So my name is Avi. For everyone, that's probably easier. My official title is Experience Advisory Lead, and my role within Devo Team is quite diverse, so I have a portion of my time which I'm dedicated to evangelizing user experience uh, across the Grand Region, across Luxembourg. I focus a lot on sales and trying to develop leads and business for the field, as well as do uh, you know, a certain amount of project management and team management, as well as, when necessary, hands-on UX expertise. So I suppose that splits my role pretty much into a variety of pillars.
1: hmm So we're gonna circle back on that and dive a bit deeper in the second part. But let's start first uh, with the quick questions. All right. So I have good ideas when?
0: I have good ideas when I'm like I'm most creative at the night. It's because I'm just more of a night owl. I'm the morning hours are meant to be. You know, I try to force myself, but it doesn't work. So I definitely am the most creative during the night. All
1: right. Good ideas don't get lost when?
0: When you record them on WhatsApp in the moment, I had the same situation. I had a brilliant idea for a marketing pitch for UX, and I immediately recorded it so I could show it to you actually at some point. Otherwise, I'd forget.
1: That's awesome. You should send that over. I will. <laughs> All right. So if I have one year off, I will.
0: I will, the usual answer everyone always says is travel. So I I would probably travel. And I think that if to be non-professional, I'd probably then try and explore other cultures and go to places which are not big cities and try and see if I can adapt a better mindset and discipline on myself. You know, whether it's like going to a more remote location in the mountains on an island and just see how I can use that on a personal basis. Mm -hmm. If we're speaking definitely not professional, I think that's what I would do.
1: Mm -hmm. But... In the end of the day, it would probably help you in your business anyways because, like, you're into UX design, mm-hmm. so it's really based on cultures and like how people perceive a certain app or a certain interface, right?
0: Absolutely. I mean, like, I, I was watching an interesting TED Talk the other day about languages and that there are cultures, for instance, that use cartography, so like a north, south, east, and west for all descriptions of what's happening. For instance, I have a bug on my, you know, southwest leg. You know, they would never say left or right. So they use cardinal navigation words in in their linguistics. I think that's super interesting. So every single culture would have a different way of talking and navigating and seeing how that evolves.
1: Mm -hmm. I see. We can circle back on that afterwards because I have a question that's related to this. Okay. All right. So my name means?
0: My name means God of the world and God of the universe. Of niches. that's the proper Hindi definition of that.
1: That's pretty cool.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I grew up with that. That definitely helped build my confidence. I can imagine. (laughs) That's for sure. Thanks, mom. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I am proud of?
0: I'm proud of, uh, recently at least, I'm I'm definitely very proud of uh, some new habits and better discipline I've learned in the past two years when it comes to recycling. Surprisingly, I've never... Going to be the ecological person you'd think, but uh, definitely I've learned much better habits in that regard in terms of diet and health. Actually, getting back on board and getting results has been very motivating. So I'm very proud of that.
1: That's super cool. I get homesick when?
0: I mean, I I actually don't get homesick. I mean, I'm, I'm born and brought up in Luxembourg. I'm in Luxembourg. I'm surrounded by my friends and family. But I think COVID does make me homesick in the fact that I I used to have a much more active social life and a much more um, nuanced, uh, like no limit way of approaching things. And I can't do that. So automatically that I think that is a sense of homesickness where I can't wait to be able to go back to what makes me truly shine. Mm
1: -hmm. I last changed my mind when...
0: So I last changed my mind, I think definitely about, I think that again, like the recycling part is really interesting as well. Like, I think I changed my mind, not only to ecology in general, but also in terms of also working with people. I mean, I'm working more and more with women in tech, and I've always had a good standpoint of how women are in tech. I find that's that's definitely, uh, it's not about changing my mind, but it also shows that they have an absolutely equally deserved place in tech, as well as, you know, we're all human beings. But I think my last change of my mind definitely was it's all about the discipline. Like there are things that I had definitely poor habits in the past, whether it's not sleeping, whether it's not working, whether it's other things. And I think that all these have changed a lot in the last two years.
1: Mm-hmm. Technology or creative technology in Luxembourg is?
0: I'd say a technology in Luxembourg is my first thought was progressive I think that it's very varied here because you have, you know, Luxembourg Space Center launching new laws and being very innovative. You have many startups working in blockchain technology. And on the other hand, you have institutions and the finance and insurance industry that are still either very modern or not at all. So I think that there's a lot of room for progression in Luxembourg and for user experience, definitely as well. Like it's getting there, but there's so much more that can still be done.
1: Mm -hmm. Would you say that Luxembourg is a bit behind on other countries?
0: I think, to rephrase my answer, I think that it's not behind per se. They are, it is simply um, evolving and progressing at a different rate in different fields. In some, it is a leader in the world. It is the first country in the world to put out space laws uh, to some certain extent. On the other hand, it's still very, you could say, almost old school or following an old school methodology when it comes to technology tied to many you know, risks and regulations and laws. So it's also not because of the company not wanting to do that, but it's because of what is imposed. And I think that is where Luxembourg is slightly different, that you want to go forward, but you have to understand at what rate that can happen.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That makes sense. So let's dive a bit deeper into what it is exactly that you're doing, right? So at the moment, I feel like there's a lot of people throwing around the words UX, UI, CX. Could you explain us a bit what's the difference between the three?
0: Uh, Sure. I think that the easiest way to ever explain UX to anyone else, especially what I use in my day to people who are non-digital, you could say, it's definitely talking about how they interact with a product that they're used to. So, for instance, I always use the Facebook example that you're trying to upload your picture in two or 10 clicks. It's my job to define that you can do it in two and that you have a good time doing it. Or you're in a restaurant and they need to serve you wine at a particular time and that, you know, you're having an intimate conversation and the guy disturbs you. Support, you know, service experience, you know, that could be considered as customer experience to some certain extent, but as well as user experience because you're the user, you're the client and, and so forth. So there's many basic examples you can give to define that a user experience and customer experience is defining these interactions you have with other people or other products and services that can be more pleasurable, more joyful and more efficient. Mm -hmm. So in a technical way, it's more often related to I'm going to build a product which is more intuitive, more accessible, and that I can have a easy onboarding a more pleasurable experience using it instead of, for instance, I have to work in Excel and then in meetings and then this and that. There's no link between these products. Mm -hmm. So Microsoft has a great way. It's built an ecosystem of products that are very in line with one another. And our job is to provide a more complete experience to our customers. And then the last one, so UI, it's obviously, you know, user interface. And that is, I think, what everyone understands from these terms. They always think design. Mm -hmm. And UI is actually that portion of the work where you need to define and design a aesthetic user interface that's actually pleasable to the aesthetic eye and how you can have different empathic reactions when you see it. So when you do marketing material, that is UI work, but it's also backed up with marketing material because it's and it's also going to be very customer centric because you're targeting a particular audience. Mm -hmm. So I find that is, you know, user experience, customer experience and UI are three completely independent categories but can influence one another.
1: Mm -hmm. So right now, are you working more in UX or UI?
0: So I never, I mean, I never prided myself on being a UI expert. I, I can do it. I'm, I'm experienced mm-hmm. in it. I have a. I find that I have a phenomenal critical eye. So I have the ability to guide better designers than myself onto what is more approachable and what will be better received upon by an audience. But building that and doing that is not my particular field of interest. I find that I'm always going to be working in the UX side of things, doing workshops, doing research, which is, again, a different job, but that's where I feel more comfortable and understanding how I need to build a product that responds to my customers' demands and then specifying it and handing that over to a competent a team member, a competent colleague who can then do the UI work on top of it. Mm-hmm. So that's what we usually do. We have a very good uh, collaboration in that sense. I can build the skeleton of a prototype or a mock-up and then she or he can come in and add all the branding and all the colors for you know to, to use a common term for it and add the actual look and feel to it.
1: Mm-hmm. So what would come first? First user experience or and then user interface or the other way around?
0: So that's the biggest problem today in the country. Everyone thinks that UI comes first before everything else. And that's why when people have a brilliant line that, you know, if you are surprised at the cost of good design, look at the cost of bad design. And that's more often than not the cause of it. So UI, in my personal opinion, is one of the more penultimate steps or like almost the ultimate step in the entire process of working on a product on a service. Because if you haven't understood your audience and defined a product which can respond to that, well, there is no purpose in placing a particular button or particular color scheme without figuring out that it could, for starters, maybe displease your stakeholders, but also displease your audience. And then this is what happens is that you just keep reiterating and going back and forth. And you waste time and money and effort on building, uh, as designers will know, uh, a version final of a version final (laughs) 3.0. So it's always better to do the data, to analyze the data, do the research, and deliver uh, an interactive prototype which will continuously improve and evolve, and then apply branding to it than not. Uh, However, that doesn't mean you cannot do uh, one without the other. For instance, you might just need a UI touch on an existing product, for instance. So it's obviously dependable on what you you need it for. But if you're talking about building something from scratch, doing research, doing UX prior to investing into branding is key. And then afterwards, it happens in parallel.
1: Okay, so if I understand this correctly, and maybe just elaborate that a bit for our audience, you would have to think of really... Who is your target audience? Who are you creating a product for, mm-hmm. which would be on the UX side? And then you go into the design mode to, to make it pleasing, right?
0: Definitely, yeah. So I think that you'd always build a product for an audience, right? That's why you build products either to for an audience or to automate a process and make it more efficient. Mm-hmm. It's usually, you know, eight, I'd say what, 60 to 80% of all all of our projects land in these two categories. And then you have a, a other category which could be very diverse. And as you said, so you will always build something that will have, that will respond to the needs of your users, whilst when you apply the UI, you're essentially just trying to make this product not only be more intuitive, but also aesthetically pleasing. Mm -hmm. Because who wants to work on a product, or on a browser, or on an application that looks like it's from 30 years ago? You will immediately have a particular negative mindset looking at it, and then it won't be adopted, it won't be used. And then afterwards, you're just going to have to shelf it. And mm-hmm. you never want to do that. So applying a more modern day branding that's also in line with the company you're trying to represent is very key.
1: Mm-hmm. So w- let's say you start working with a client. What would be your process? What would be the different steps that you would take in order to define, let's say, um, a target audience? Or would you work with workshops? How, how, what's your process? What's your secret sauce?
0: So I actually have a secret sauce, which is which I which I think is it's pretty awesome. And the fact is, that you can apply it at a very foundational level, and it's an easy to go two day program that is fantastic for small to medium sized companies to get going. So how it works is that we establish personas, which is we understand our target audience, understand to whom we're trying to build the product. A very basic, for instance, uh, an, an administrative user and a regular user. And this context could be very non-digital, right? In a restaurant, you could think of like the people who are working behind the till and also the customers. So for instance, two completely opposite people who will have different use cases of the product. Once you've done that, you can then establish a value proposition design, which is where you talk about in a nutshell, the values of business versus the values of the product itself. And you talk about the pleasurable aspects, the negative aspects, the pain points, the pain relievers. And once you find instead of just looking for opposites, but once you find that both parts of this table match, then you actually have a sound business model from which you can move forward. Mm -hmm. That leads you into an exercise we like to call the customer journey map. And so the customer journey map today is how does the product function today? What's the workflow today? So for instance, I wake up, I check my email, I go into Excel and I log off. Now. This is maybe not a pleasurable experience at particular moments of the day, but then leading into the next exercise, the service blueprint, is the architecture of how I would want this product to look tomorrow. So I would then, in the customer journey map, define each step, how I empathically feel happy, sad, angry, or frustrated. And in the service blueprint, I will redefine each step, but by taking all the data I've already acquired and focus on how I want the product to look in the future.
1: That's mm, super interesting I think there's a lot of people out there that are going to want to work with you now
0: um, I hope so <laughs> <laughs> no but I think I think this is um, it's, it's a very basic let's say two day workshop program so if I want to wrap it up you input your personas into this architecture into this workflow and then you finish off with black and white sketches and there you go you have done some fundamental research you have an idea for a new concept and you've sketched it very quickly with a variety of people in the room obviously you're doing this workshop with people from business from the service area from different fields and then afterwards you can apply a lot more exhaustive research throughout and also on top of it you can add ui work you can add banding and design you can go deeper into research where you can do much more testing you can do benchmarking you can do focus groups etc more exercises and then you can also be ready to hand over your sketch, your prototype, onto an implementation team, a development team, by writing up specs and understanding budgeting, what will be used in the first version, what will be used in the sixth version.
1: Mm-hmm. So maybe to our audience, explain um, what is specs exactly?
0: So specs, So when we say specifications, and there are two ways to look at it. We have functional and technical specifications. Functional can obviously also mean design specifications. So the definition of that would be how a particular part of functionality of a product works. For instance, I have a a mobile app that needs to have a login functionality, and I have this login functionality that's also going to give me an account functionality, and it's also going to provide me a payment module. Whilst the technical specifications in this case is trying to use the language that the developers will understand, for instance, how will I implement it, what kind of APIs will I be calling? What's the, you know, architecture? What's the diagram of how are we putting all these technical pieces together? Uh, I'm not going to go into the details there, but I find that you will have to describe what you want and on the other hand, how you will do it technically. And once you've done both, you have something in French we call it Gaillet charge, and in English, I suppose, specifications, uh, functional and technical specifications, which defines the integrity of a product or service and how to move forward.
1: Mm-hmm. So if I understand this correctly, this could be applicable to any kind of sized company, right? Because it's just a two-day workshop, technically, where you start off and you kick off like everything that you would need Mm -hmm. to further develop. Can you give us an example of like a project that you've recently worked on?
0: I mean, so so recently, I've actually been doing a lot of a variety of things in project management, but the the last UX project I did was extremely interesting. So we had a two-day workshop and it was a pure UX project. So they asked us, to dive deeper in the research part. So we integrated user interviews, which took an extra few days, more like a few hours to having to call all of the individuals and then write up reports. Mm -hmm. We'd have benchmarking, where we do a lot of competition analysis to see what other products are on the market. We did some extra focus group exercises as well on top of the interviews, both during the ideation phase where we're talking about what we want to build, but also at the end to showcase what we built and see that is this responding to what we talk about to see that if there's any last-minute quick wins we could implement. Mm -hmm. And once we had completed all that, we also, in parallel with a designer, so a UI designer, we were working on the prototype, and it was continuously evolving. And the, the goal of this project was not implementation. The goal of this project was to provide a prototype with specifications so that the company can then later on decide, will we build this, and how will we build this? But our job was, it was probably one of the more exciting UX projects we've done because it was purely oriented around experience and an excessive amount of other exercises, which the average company doesn't always want. Sometimes they want to build an intranet, a website, a small product, where a few days workshops and then a few days to draw and sketch is enough. But that gives them all the information because then afterwards you, you, the most important thing to understand here is that you often reach a point of redundancy. You often reach that point where asking a hundred people the same question after the 14th person, you're going to get the same answer. So unless you remodel your question or remodel your journey, it's not going to change. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So that's a a UXX person needs to make that decision whether they remodel the questions and keep digging further or whether they feel that this is enough to build a first version of the product, a proof of concept, and then move further.
1: Mm So currently you're working at DevoTeam and you obviously have teams that could like continue the process. So you could do the UX and then somebody else could take over into the development phase, right?
0: Absolutely. So the the UX part in most of our projects here at DevoTeam, we're a very product focused company and we have a lot of micro squads that work on projects. And we always involve user experience in all of our projects. And to some certain extent, I would even consider change and adoption a very important Pillar, but it's obviously very different. Uh, the approach is is definitely part of experience as a whole, but not part of UX. So if we don't, if we're not implementing practices in terms of design and research, we're implementing good practices of change and adoption. And I find that these all go together. And this is usually in the beginning parts of our projects, in the analysis part phase of our projects, which is then handed over to a technical team to focus on delivery. But we still are collaborating throughout the project because. We don't just hand over and move on to something else Mm -hmm. we hand over but also oversight to make sure that it's properly implemented and that the requirements are if they're changing how can we adapt to that etc etc
1: so the change part would basically be how do people adopt afterwards that the project is finished how do the teams respond to the change that happened in the company right
0: Absolutely. How how do they adopt a product within the structure of the company? How are they going to bring awareness on using the product or service? How are we going to communicate to them through marketing, through trainings, through seminars? And what is the level of support they'll be getting? It can sound very boring, but on the other hand, there's no point building a product if you're not going to actually provide a platform or or uh, a method for your employees to learn it, understand it, and feel comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. So we have a customer success manager who's completely responsible for that. And I think that being a UX designer or a UX expert or UI designer, you pick up a lot of these variety of skills, such as change and adoption, so you are also able to contribute to that factor of the work.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So I was wondering... Since here we have like a big creative department versus, let's say, technological department, how do those two, in your opinion, merge together as a creative tech studio? Do you think that's something good? Do you see the future going there? Or do you think that maybe people can also just continue doing things the way they're doing them and just stick to technology solidly?
0: I think that uh, user experience is definitely becoming more and more important every day. I find that Developers are going to be having to have, if they're not already doing UX innately, they will be doing it eventually. And our job as a UX designer or UX researcher or UX writer will completely evolve as well. Mm-hmm. So in Devo Team, for instance, we have our creative tech. It's a combination of creating the uh, a multidisciplinary squad that can deliver products and services and maintenance at a variety of levels, being continuously product-focused, agile, also with a continuous delivery model. And I find that, this is a lot of you know, technical words, but it's essentially just a squad of people who are trying to collaborate continuously. And I find that this is an ecosystem that all companies are trying to implement today, but it's not always feasible.
1: Mm-hmm. Sometimes
0: it can be very strict from the top down, and sometimes people think it's too innovative, too modern, and that it will disrupt the workplace.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I am a strong believer that this is the more efficient way to go because it has proven results. And it's not, a, I mean, Agile wasn't the Agile Manifesto dates back to, I don't even remember now, 10, 20, 30 years ago, when some men were in a room and people thought that it was going to be very masculine, until they realized that some of the wives of these men said that, why don't you guys actually constructively discuss this and write down your ideology? And mm-hmm. through that, they built the Agile Manifesto. And it's the same concept that once you put together a methodology and a framework, and you can implement that, it's only up to the companies to bring it forward and keep evolving it.
1: So this brings me to one question. Do you know who invented? Is there an inventor or like a godfather of uh, UX design? Does it exist?
0: I believe so. I mean, I use Norman Nielsen Group, NNG, as a primary reference for who are the godfathers of UX or the godfathers of, let's say, CX, as well as implementing research habits. People would say that Apple were the first ones to bring sleek and sexy design into the mainstream world via their products and their product line and the vision they had. Um, Design thinking existed quite a while ago, where the design thinking was actually, I think, from the 80s even, where there is a company in in the States, um, I might have said something wrong here, it might be IDEO, I need to confirm, but it's a company that is not an expert on a particular sector, but they're an expert in the process of building products. So they could build you a technological product, a a digital product, such as they could also build you the next chair, the next radio, the next TV. And their focus is on the process where they're brainstorming continuously and being very agile and product-centric instead of just, okay, we're the best in finance or we're the best in hardware or it's in architecture and whatnot. So um, I think that these principles go back 30, 40 years now, we're already in 2020, maybe even further back. But today I find that probably the most influential and oldest stand around company there is definitely NNG and one of the most world-renowned companies about that.
1: Wow, so it goes back a long way, actually.
0: Definitely, it goes back a long way. And even I was surprised. I only recently found out how old design thinking is, how old the Agile Manifesto is. You'd never think that. You'd always think that Technologically, like whenever you think about technology, I remember, you know, when we had floppy disks, when we had CDs, <laughs> we had mini disks, and when we were first getting our, our Linux machines and then our DOS and all that. And I, I went through that myself, even though, you know, I may not be that old, you could say, but nonetheless, technology has evolved ridiculously. I remember my first job, people were getting their smartphones. That was in 2011. And uh, I was still running around on a more classical phone with a new interface. And that was it.
1: The and one
0: that had snake. I well, not the one that had snake. I did have. I did have the Nokia 3310. I think at some point. <laughs> I think I had a Sony Ericsson as well. But it's just funny when you realize that you were also there throughout a new technological boom. Like there's literally a technological boom every two years now, versus before where it was yeah. maybe every five or ten years. And it's incredible, and it's moving at a much quicker pace than we can track on, which is also developing bad bad habits as well as good ones.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so from the top of your head, give us uh, what do you think about the user experience of the Nokia uh, 365, was it?
0: I think it was the Nokia 3310.
1: Yeah, something like that. I
0: mean, it's considered I the most...
1: I <laughs> had like colors.
0: I don't know, I, I think so, maybe it had colors. I mean, I still remember back in the day, they also had like, if you look at Matrix, if you ever watch Matrix, it's one of my favorite movies. You see, they still have these flip phones and these yeah. Motorola's and all that. And it's brilliant. It, it gives you a classical vibe of technology. But uh, well, the user experience of the Nokia 3310, I mean, I remember essay like texting and having to count the amount of letters on it and make sure that I don't cross into an extra text and having to use a ridiculous amount of short words. Gosh, you couldn't even imagine sending a picture or anything else. But it was the most robust phone that ever existed, mm-hmm. you know, practically indestructible, according to studies, however true that may be. It was a pioneer in the, in the field. And then obviously Sony Ericsson came and then there was obviously Apple, there was Samsung, there was Huawei and all these other companies that are coming now. But even before the Nokia 3310, there were these satellite phones. There were mm-hmm. people who were carrying around briefcase telephones. It's their, you know, bigger pioneers in the past that we probably don't even know about anymore.
1: Mm-hmm. And they don't
0: get enough recognition, but it's definitely interesting, I think.
1: Yeah, I think also out there, there's a lot of people that see the beginnings of Apple. As a company and the iconic speech of Steve Jobs, for example, that he gave for, for Macintosh mm-hmm. as kind of like the beginning of UX. What are your thoughts on that? Like, do you are you an Apple believer or are you more like uh, Windows?
0: I've always been on Windows my entire life. The only reason I have a Mac, it's a very practical reason. Uh, none other than I use Adobe products and I need to have uh, in the operating system upon which the first line of Adobe products are launched. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a big um, fan of Adobe XD. I've been on since the beta, and I've been using that for all of our prototyping. And uh, I find that it's the most effective tool. And that is truly the only reason I have a MacBook. But I think that it's like Android and iPhone as well, and Android and iOS, sorry, where people will simply be in one camp or the other. I'm a firm believer. I'm a firm Android person. And however, even though I, I do appreciate the, the the user experience of iOS, of the macOS, and it is very beautiful, it's very interesting, and it can be more powerful. It's based on Linux as well. So it's obviously got a whole different grade to it than Windows, which you know everyone knows has the blue screen. But mm-hmm. I think that they're all just, you know, tools and you have to use the tool that works most effectively for you. And that's it. You know, that's my job as a UX person. I cannot tell you what to choose, but I can simply show you the options. And it's your job to make the decision why one is better than the other.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. So I also wanted to circle back on something you said in the beginning, in the quick questions about how basically UX changes based on culture, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm just from the top of my head, have this example of like, if you would have to design something for like an Asian culture, right? Because they even have a completely different writing. How would you approach something like that? And does even let's say the cultural part of those countries, does this play into UX and how you design for those?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So I was brought up in a very business and success-oriented household, and we were taught about the cunningness at work, the the political factor of it, and how to handle people from different cultures. I always say the example about the Chinese culture, because I, I truly admire them, and how Gifts and gift for receiving and giving in that culture is key and essential to business relationships. Mm -hmm. If you go to Italy, for instance, most business is done in a bar and that doesn't mean that they're alcoholics, not at all. It simply means that it's culturally different. Mm -hmm. In India, there is a lot of positive attitude concerning that everything can be done and everything can be done. Nothing is impossible, but there is a lot of work on process and how it's going to be achieved. And in the Western culture, you have a lot of people concerned about time, and these are stereotypes. And even though I, I don't enjoy stereotyping, I still find that these stereotypes are defined by habits and culture. And that fits into UX and, and CX. Because, for instance, if I go to an Amazonian village or to a village in Bali or in the middle of nowhere you know, on an island where there is a not an under or overdeveloped society, but simply a differently developed society, then how they will interact with the head of the village, for instance whether it's a man or a woman or, or a child, who knows, then their ecosystem and their political ecosystem is definitely different. Mm-hmm. And how they will be you know, talking to each other and interacting and doing ceremonies and their religion, all these things influence their way of living and their beliefs. So I need to adapt to them and understand that because I'm entering a world that's theirs and I need to respect that. It goes back to how people conquer and colonialize the entire world. They will always try and impose a particular way. And for some cases, it's been for the better, for some for the worse. But at the end of the day, if you try and destroy the variety of what the human race can offer, then you're indirectly also destroying creativity, innovation, and the ability to keep moving forward.
1: Totally. That's a very interesting point of view. So I was also wondering... Where do you think then UX is going in the future? Because I've been reading about, let's say, they're integrating augmented reality into user experience. There's like a voice um, AIs that are going to be working in the future. Like basically you can talk to a bot and they're going to give you answers. Where do you think UX is going and in what terms would you think that it's going to evolve into different branches of the job? Because right now it's more general, right? UX is like one bucket but it could be very specified.
0: So it's it's a very interesting question. and It can be definitely dived into into multiple areas. I always say that UX should not be considered as solely UX. It is experience. Experience is what has always defined the human race and how we interact with anything around us and how we learn and how we grow and absorb knowledge. That is experience. Mm -hmm. So the field of experience is the future. I find it's not how it will evolve into the future. It is the future. And any kind of decision we make on defining our business strategies politically, our everyday life with our partners, with our families, regardless of everything we do, it's an ever-evolving experience and we're always going to be interacting with objects, with materials, with people uh, empathically as well as professionally and uh, at all different levels uh, in the emotional ranges that we have. So it's not that where it is going in the future. I think everyone is a... I had a tech talk with a call with someone recently and he mentioned that everyone is a designer and I find that it's so true, obviously. We are all experienced artists of some way and we express ourselves in a particular method. But now, obviously, going back to the actual profession of being a UX designer or a CX expert or a UI designer whatnot, then I find that, as I said, it's going to be becoming more and more mainstream, where everyone is going to pick up these tendencies of being more agile, doing workshops, getting research, studying before simply delivering and building product focus. That is definitely where, let's say, in the next one or two years, more and more companies are going to be jumping on this train and definitely going to be going in that direction. And then the UX profession itself will evolve into a certain level of soft skills, where which is definitely project management, people management, applying adoption across companies. And just because everyone will pick up these better habits, you still need the person to lead the orchestra. Mm -hmm. So you cannot just have everyone be an amazing musician if there is no one going to take leadership and ownership on those points. So having these primary experts in the field whose sole job is to critique, understand, evolve and adapt that is always going to be key regardless. And it's always been this case that everyone can pick up new and new soft skills and everyone is becoming more and more multidisciplinary. But at the end of the day, your personal character and how you lead and how you're going to uh, exasperate that across other people is always necessary. So it's not a great answer of that. Will the job evolve? I mean, it will definitely be that we'll have UX design is specific to robotics, specific to AI, specific to VR, specific to projects and products, et cetera. That's obviously going to happen. And it's already happening. It's not that it's going to happen in the next year. It's already, we're already there. It's already been happening for more than one or two years now and even further. So I think that, as I said, experience is the future. It always has been. People just need to realize that.
1: Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So for the people out there, There's probably a lot of them wondering now, how do you become a UX designer? Because it seems such a vast kind of field with a lot of skill sets that you need to have. Can you explain a bit how did you get there and how would you suggest somebody that wants to kind of step into your shoes? How would they do that?
0: I find that it is daunting for people. They find that you need to be a unicorn, need to be perfect at social skills, pitching skills, presenting skills, as well as research and drawing and being a good artist. I could list 50 other things, and if you go on to LinkedIn or any job website, you'll see that people have jobs for UX, UI designer. And I personally say never apply for those jobs because clearly that description doesn't understand the role of the what you actually need to deliver. So if you're a person who is interested in the evolution of products and are more interested in gathering data, being, let's say, the business analyst or the one talking to the users, the one. You are an artsy person who likes to draw and, you know, build these experiences, these products, these services. You know, you go to a shop and you think that if they put a bucket of sweets right at the entrance or right at the till just to say thank you when someone purchased something, how awesome would the client feel? And they would always bring back their friends. If you have that kind of creative mindset, I think that UX and and UI and CX is definitely for you. But once you enter, so how do you enter the job? You simply need to find a place where you can flourish and learn and exploit all your skills. I think that whether you're young or even, you know, if you're already 10, 20 years in your career, once you start in a company, in a circle, amongst your friends, trying to apply things to improve the environment, improve the experience, you'll very quickly realize, oh, I'm a good talker. Oh, oh I'm a good artist. Oh, you know, oh, I'm very good at this niche business because I'm passionate about it. And once you've found, that particular thing that you really are a master at, then you realize that what category of experience you land under. And I couldn't say this enough. Find a mentor and find someone who will show you the ropes and guide you along the way. Because if you don't find someone with whom you can collaborate and who is an inspiration to you, then you're always going to be worried and lost and feel alone. Everyone can find someone across LinkedIn. Even you can even always send me a message or anyone else, and I'm sure that you know there are people who are always willing to help. And that is an important important factor as well in this field. You know, it's a field where we want to help each other and others around us.